Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's features include Driving in the Moonlight. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani. And now, to present the best podcast named Double Edge Double Bill Award, our guest, Jonathan Habtomichael. The envelope, please. And the winner is... Double Edge Double Bill! Oh my god, I can't believe it! Oh god! Oh, 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 thank you for that lovely trophy, Jonathan. Oh, I, I didn't expect this at all. I have, I have so many people to thank. I want to thank my parents. I want to thank my sisters. I want to thank anyone who's ever been a guest on the show. Um, I want to thank Podbean, who deals with us all the time. Just, um, I want to thank all of... The people who you know I want to have as guests, but they rejected us with those beautiful right. season desist orders. Um, I want to thank, oh my god, there's so many people. Adam, who else do I thank? Um, oh, you know what? Um, I want to thank all anybody who's ever directed a movie that has been discussed on the show. Um, I want to thank my uh, lawn guy. I want to thank. Oh, um, you know what? You know, Adam, am I forgetting anybody? You know what, Adam, I am forgetting somebody. I'm forgetting about the person who was with me this entire time, who I couldn't do this show without. Of course, I have to thank. Satan, my boy down there, thank you so much, Oliver, never stopping believing in me. Oh, that's it, Adam, go ahead. Uh, that, uh, son of a bitch. Oh, we're getting played off. Goodbye, everybody, thank you so much. God damn it. And see. Are we all had our fun. Uh, but thank you, Jonathan, for putting up with this bit and being our guest for this episode on Best Picture Winners. Uh, it's an honor. It's just great to actually be recognized. It's an honor to not be nominated for this one award award show that we made up for the stupid intro bit. Um, but yes, uh, so we are doing an episode on Best Picture winners because the week this is coming out is uh, the week leading up to the 91st Academy Awards. I guess we should talk a bit about our own history with the Academy Awards, obviously the big industry award show that everybody points to. An Oscar means something. It's the big one. It's not like the Golden Globes where they bribe people. It's not like the other bullshit awards that most people don't give a shit about. The Oscars are considered the main deal. Um, I think that often is very unfair to especially the movies that are nominated and even win because it attaches an unfortunate stigma. There are even some great movies that people talk about and they're surprised that they don't, that those films even have won any Oscars. Like the biggest one, Citizen Kane. Everyone keeps talking about Citizen Kane is the best movie ever or they, people try to defend bad movies by saying it's not Citizen Kane yet no Oscar gold. No, that went to How Green Was My Valley. Everyone's favorite movie. Yeah, and then on the flip side, the stigma, look at poor, poor Cuba Gooding Jr. I honestly think winning an Oscar killed his career. And even for movies I also really like, just get kind of attached to like, oh, that one, like, best picture, whatever. Like, I genuinely really enjoy something like The Artist, 
but it's a movie that constantly is just like, that one over all these much better movies. It's like, I agree, it's lesser than most of those other nominees that year. But it's also just like, if it had not gotten the stupid Oscar push, it would just be like, oh, it was a fun little tribute to silent movies. Now it has this pedestal it has to like be on and be criticized for forever. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part, actually. Like, I felt like uh, expanding to uh, 10 nominees was supposed to at least give us other films that more mainstream audiences prefer, but it seems to bring out more artists. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot more people who complain altogether, like uh, The Shape of Water won last year, and I thought it was a phenomenal movie, but I had like college friends and old classmates on social media saying, what the hell is The Shape of Water? Like, I feel like there is also that level of stigma that the Oscars claim to be of prestige, but most general audiences either don't care because it's not the films they watch or because of what Thomas has been saying, like the stigma of that movie gets picked over these at least three other great movies. And I feel like we have a very good example for at least one of our picks. You guess which one. Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> Like when I was younger, I absolutely cared about, oh, which one is, you know, nominated this year and everything. And you can ask Thomas, last time we spoke, I didn't know any of the pictures nominated this year other than Black Panther. I mean, I've heard of them. The Oscar push to me isn't what it used to be. Like, I just form my own opinions at this rate. I think it started with Crash. <laughs> it's just gone from there. No, yeah, I mean, I agree with that because I think Jonathan and I have only really followed the Oscars in recent years because we're mutually part of a little. Um, movie fantasy league thing and the Oscars are sort of like the big Super Bowl party and that's why I've been watching it for as long as I have as of recently if it if I wasn't a part of that I wouldn't really give a shit because it's, it's like we mentioned it's just like it just kind of brings up this sort of movie nerd thing of just like why wasn't this dominated why wasn't this dominated and I kind of got over that shit it was around the time of like something like a crash where it's just like eh, it's just who cares <laughs> Let let it let it be a thing. It just it's 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 a fun movie nerd thing, and like that's all it really should be. So and obviously now we're in the middle of a Oscar campaign where it's really struggling to be relevant. The ratings keep going down every year, and they've been trying to do things like, oh, we're gonna make the show short, and people are like, fuck you, you're gonna cut out categories, and they're like, fine, we won't, we'll show all the categories. We're gonna have Kevin Hart host. That's a bad idea. I guess uh, maybe no host. I, I, what do we? What do you want? <laughs> That's what the Academy's doing. Just like, what do you want from us? But uh, let's talk about our two specific choices, uh, which we'll start off with um, the good pick that we got from Adam was the 2016 winner, Moonlight, and then afterward we'll talk about the 1989 winner, Driving Miss Daisy, as we decided at the end of last week's show. Um, but we'll start off now with Barry Jenkins's Moonlight. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Do it. You gonna raise my son now? I got you, I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. I'm your mama. You're in the middle of the world, man. Moonlight, rated R, this Friday. So, Moonlight, as I mentioned, it won for the 2016 Oscars that came out on November 18th, 2016, written and directed by Barry Jenkins, uh, which was based on a unpublished play called uh, In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin McCraney. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture that year and um, was against 
Arrival, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and most infamously, La La Land, because I guess we should get this out of the way now, that uh, unfortunately it seems the current legacy of this movie is the infamous incident at the 89th Academy Awards, in which Warren Beatty was given a Best Actress Extra <laughs> envelope, and initially announced La La Land is the winner, and then all the La La Land people rushed onto the stage, and then they were like, oh shit, no, wait, Moonlight, you won Best Picture. Which, to be fair, may be the biggest moment in Oscar history ever. Yeah, I think so. The, at least the, one of the biggest F-ups. Jonathan, you and I were watching that live, and that was like such a tremendous moment to watch live. Yeah, I honestly thought that the La La Land uh, producer was trolling. But once the actual envelope was shown in the air and it says Moonlight Best Picture, that's where we all went crazy. I will always remember because they show the audience a lot. Like uh, The Rock was looking all confused. Uh, Busy Phillips was talking with Michelle Williams. It was the weirdest uh, moment of Oscar history that I've seen live. I've seen clips of the really bad production with like Snow White. Oh, and, and Rob Lowe, uh, yeah. I'm at least happy that Moonlight won, because there was a lot of La La Land hate, because it swept the Golden Globes, and Moonlight was just observed through Mahershala Ali, because he was constantly winning for Best Supporting Actor, and everyone was just dogpiling on La La Land, not paying attention to any of the other films. It was just, we just don't want to see La La Land, but it was still actually somewhat... Good ratings. I, I know it was at a downward spike, but I thought the La La Land year, there was a slight uptick before when crashing down for last year's, but... Yeah, and I mean, and to be fair, that that was also that ceremony, La La Land was, like, sweeping as well, even at the Oscars, because it won, like, director and production design, best actress, a bunch of stuff that it was nominated for. And But Moonlight wasn't only a Best Picture winner, it also did win, as you mentioned, for Mahershala Ali, for Supporting Actor, and then also for um, Best Adapted Screenplay, which uh, Barry Jenkins and McHenry won for. And uh, let's get into the actual movie itself, guys, um, and especially I want to hear from Adam, because Adam, this was your pick. And you mm -hmm. specifically stated at the end of the last episode that you had not seen the film prior to picking it. So uh, what were your uh, sort of first impressions of Moonlight? Uh, first impressions were, I mean, this this movie punched me right in the friggin' stomach. I, I, this is probably my favorite surprise movie easily of the show, if not of the last 10 years. I always wanted to see it. It's just I never got the chance. And... I just figured, oh, this is a perfect opportunity, and holy shit, am I glad I picked this movie, man. I, I mean, this movie, everything about it, the way it's shot, the the lighting, the lack of lighting, the score, the original soundtrack, the acting, just everything about it, it is just, this movie is just fucking amazing. I knew the basic premise going in, but there's just so much more in it, as far as just even subtleties, and... Give Trevante Rhodes more work, or better work, even. You're not a fan of Bird Box? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, now I want to see what is, what is the the director's next movie? Beale Street Be could talk. If Beale Street could talk, yes, is Barry Jenkins' follow up that is nominated for a couple awards this year. None of the big yeah, ones, except for mm, well, except for Regina King for Best Supporting Actress. That's but, true. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But seeing this, guaranteed that I'm going to see that now. Like, that's how much I love this movie, that just seeing this one time, I'm like, okay, no, now I'm going to see anything this guy does. 
I, I think he was a fan, Jonathan. Would you interpret that from what he was saying? Uh, I mean, we, we've seen some interesting movies together with Adam. This is probably the oh, first wait, time. Oh, wait, 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 guys. Don't, no, I didn't like it. You got to, yes. I liked La La Land, everybody. It yeah. won. <laughs> a pro La La Land, you fuckers. Oh. I'm not uh, pro La La Land. I, I hate La La Land. I'm sorry. Go well, ahead, guys. Well, but, you know, I, I did like what you were talking about. Something that really especially stood out to me the second time I watched it is the fact that the Oscars usually like to award showier movies. And I think it's a, weirdly a connection between both of our films tonight is that they're two Best Picture winners that are a lot more sort of subtle and... Well, maybe not subtle for both of them. But yeah, I was going to say, I they're, wanted to they're, 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 Okay, you know, they're maybe more intimate. Is intimate the is the better word, yes. Okay. I agree with oh. that. They're, they're both more intimate, sort of lower-budget films. Um, in fact, this movie only has about like a $1.8 million budget, and I've heard from that that that's mostly like licensing for music and shit. <laughs> but what's, what's so great is like that they award something... That's so much more understated and grounded and doesn't have that many, like, big Oscar-y moments to it. There are a few. Despite being so much more downplayed, it still also has a three-act structure, and there still is a lot you can engage in just on a very human level. What I've noticed in more recent years, by more recent years, we're like the last 20 years for the Oscars, they do tend to award more of the character-based stories because the majority of the Academy's uh, membership are actors. So while there are more showier acting performances in many Best Picture nominees and winners, I feel like there is still a recognition of the subtle work. And I feel like that's what really gives that punch up. Like, I really dug Moonlight. It was like my top five of that year. But what really got to me really was actors really worked well together in making the story about Chiron and that is very hard because usually when you talk about these character-based Oscar winners, they're more of you have this one person, most likely a guy, and he's just doing this great performance. And there might be a really good scene from an older character actress and she'll get Best Supporting Actress. And there's this up-and-coming guy. He may get Best Supporting or they'll give it to the old gay guy. There is a formula to it. And I feel like Moonlight transcends the limitations of that while bucking against the at least the showier prerequisite right because i mean the only showy performance i would argue in this movie is naomi harris which is not to downplay her at all i think she works really well as uh sharon's mother who has a crack addiction but at the same time she does have a fair share of even subtler moments and, and what i also really love barry jenkins is the current master to me of a shot that feels plucked from your memory in terms of, like, there's so many great shots of people, like, staring directly at the camera, and it feels like it is plucked from your memory in a crystal clear, almost, like, HD sort of sense. It feels like you're plucking, like, a moment out of, like, Minority Report from your memory. And it's so beautifully presented and striking and stark that it feels like if it's a beautiful moment, it's one you want to treasure forever. And then for the horrible moments that happen in life, it feels like it's something that's so crystal clear and obvious in your head that you can never get it out, even no matter how much you want to. That's why I think it especially comes off in this movie, and if Beale Street Can Talk also has this so much. And I think that's a, it's a big credit to the cinematography of both those movies. Those, those things just burn in your memory, and you feel like you are in the perspective of that particular character at any point. Uh, again, double on the kudos on James Laxton, who is the cinematographer of Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk. Those shots of like zooming in on Naomi Harris, either when she's asking money for 
from Chiron or when she is yelling at him, like those feel even like proto first draft level shots compared to the stuff in, in if Bill Street could talk. This guy, I am shocked that he's not doing work in other movies. Like he just only seems to be working with Barry Jenkins again with that intimacy, not only with the character acting with each other, just looking at them as if you're actually looking at the person. Cause the movement of like your head shifting around, like, a lot of like first person perspective shots in other films are just that steady shot and the person's just in the center or off to the side. But it feels natural. I, I can't believe I overlooked it the first time around, but it's like the beginnings of some great aspect of cinematography, which is why I really wish this guy actually gets recognition. It took how long for Roger Dickens to get his Oscar? 15 fucking years, I think. Oh, shit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the best uh examples of what you guys are talking about is probably chapter two with the teenage version the scenes of him just staring directly in the camera and you know they're oh god when kevin when they make him beat him up you're like oh god damn it but it, he, the way he's looking in the camera him and kevin both it's almost like yeah, it's an ultimate betrayal but also like i understand why you're doing this Fuck this kid could just couldn't catch a break in this movie. No, and, and also a credit to even the before they actually have the fight together. The shot where like it's Chiron leaving and then the uh bully, the Patrick DeSeal character, just swims around him like a fucking shark. I love that shot yeah. so much. It just is like a perfect encapsulation of like feeling trapped within the circle is like not just him like circling around, but all the people slowly gathering around as that's happening. Just because like no shit's going to go down. It just, mm-hmm. that feels like once again, it's another moment where it's like, it's perfectly orchestrated, but it also feels very natural. Just in terms of like, he's sizing up Chiron and he's getting ready to send out Kevin. And then the moment Kevin goes into view and he's just like, yeah, hit this motherfucker. You're instantly just like, Oh no, <laughs> not yeah, you, know. Kevin. And oh, to Kevin. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, when he breaks the chair over his fucking back, I'm like, good! Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Do it! And then he gets in the system, so that it really doesn't work out for him too well. I love the fact that, even with that character of Terrell, who's arguably one of the more villainous characters of the movie, they do emphasize, like, after that amazing shot where he just beats the shit out of him with the chair, Terrell's just, like, squirming there like a child. And you get the implication just that, like, it's not so much any of these individual characters are villains, as much as, like, this environment they ha- are, you know, growing up in or living in is completely destroying them. It's like, he's an example, obviously there's so many other examples, like Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris, but it's a consistent thread throughout the movie that even affects characters who could be just a mustache twirling villain of sorts in the wrong hands. And I think that's a great thing as well for this movie. It's just like, it doesn't feel like there are heroes and villains as much as just people who do shitty things and mm-hmm. re- live to regret it. Exactly. We keep talking about Mahershala Ali, but we never actually talk about his, uh, his character. He's the man that finds little Chiron in a in an abandoned crack house, but he's the big dealer selling the crack to everyone. Including his mother! Yes. Mm-hmm. He understands that there's a level of system where we have to protect people, but he's in the system because he can't actually do substantial work. Like He can't just go up and uh, run for city council and and try to clean up Miami. The best that he can do is sell drugs and give these lost young boys either a job or get nurses uh, who are basically neg- negligent to their sons to have some crack. <laughs> I know it sounds so weird when I'm saying it, but yeah, basically. 
Yeah, and it's it's funny, you know, the scene where, you know, young Sharon confronts Mahershala Ali and he's, do you deal drugs? Yeah, does my mom do drugs? Or however it plays out. And just, dude, fuck, this movie hits me every time. I'm thinking about it getting, getting verklempt. He, you know, it just destroys him, his whole foundation right then and there, uh, wands. And I love, I thought it was so good how they cut right before he had the full meltdown and crying. They didn't show his vulnerability like too much. He still had that mystique because I would imagine he still had that with the Sharon character. You can see, like, tears starting to escape. Mm-hmm. The first one where he lights his guard down, because prior to that, he's, like, the neighborhood um, almost hero, where he's just like, hey, everybody knows him, everybody likes him, except when he, like, confronts Naomi Harris, and she's just like, motherfucker, come on. <laughs> You're giving me crack. Oh, you, yeah, she you puts think him gonna, right in his fucking place. Yeah. You're gonna raise my son better than me, even though yeah. you are giving me that crack? Yeah, we, we, we know how this relationship works, and you're trying to go against that. Come on, this isn't, you know this isn't going to work. This is, And the thing is, she's someone else who could have been portrayed as a total villain, but she is more just like, once again, a victim of this environment, and somebody who does mm-hmm. shitty things, and lives to regret it. Um, especially, just like, the scene where adult Chiron visits her at the halfway house that she's in, and she's mm-hmm. just like, I mean, I just work, and you know, they'll, they'll allow me to sit here. And I'm, I'm sorry, I never showed you the love that you needed at that point. Just, it feels like such a very real moment, but it still pays off a three-act structure. That's the genius of this movie, really, is that... It, when I, when I remember when it came out, what I jokingly called it, for compared to admittedly, a movie I also love, um, it's Boyhood with Conflict. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's basically what it is. I love Boyhood, but that movie is completely missing conflict, and it's just more about seeing this kid, you know, grow up versus this kid's growing up, but there's constant conflict around him. <laughs> I think it does such a great job of doing a very naturalistic story, but also there is a structure, there is three acts, but you just don't feel it. You feel like you're just living Chiron's life, and you're having these big escalating moments that are very small. Like I love the fact that the tension of the third act of this movie is two dudes who are going to meet up in a restaurant after not seeing each other for ten years. Mm. There's and, so much yeah. tension in a very simple like, conversation that's going to happen between these two dudes. Well, I mean, you know, there's a, obviously a little more to it than just two dudes are going to meet up who haven't seen each other. I mean... But the basic tenet of it, the what is going on in that scene is two people are meeting up together, but there's so much story impacting that. I'm just saying the general yeah. action is just, hey, everyone, you want to meet up? Exactly. The the point, like, as we said, like with showy or Oscar winners, there's like either some sort of big battle or bombastic speech and everyone's cheering. But it's been slowly built up, like them being as kids, them having that sexual encounter, the fight and all of the interactions they had in those first two acts leading up to making the men that they are. It's just a beautiful crescendo, but it's not like a, uh, someone hitting a gong it's more like a, a xylophone like it has some sort of real merit and beauty to it that's just not just a big loud showy thing that's another reason why i love this movie so much that they didn't go that route they didn't have this big revolutionary speech by sharon at the end towards kevin or really vice versa god damn it i love this movie Fuck me for picking this. <laughs> in, a good, in a good way. <laughs> it's funny, Adam, because you said like the, the Sharon does not have a speech or there's like a big revelation. I can't help but think of of uh, the current Academy Award Best Picture nominee, Bohemian Rhapsody, where Freddie Mercury is coming out to his current wife 
And at the end of the conversation, she just says, you're gay. It's that type of really crass idiocy. It makes me love Moonlight. Yes, I love <sighs> that when he's a kid and his mom says, you know, what she says to him, you know, the way he walk, about the way he walks and, you know, you don't know. And then the little boy asks him, you know, am I that? I don't, I don't even want to say the word. It's such a dirty word. But, you know, this is what they call me. Am I that? And he, he explains it to him. But he, the way he explained it to him, even, he's like, you know, no, you're not that. You might be gay, but you're not that. And just for them to go that route to even give the the Juan character even that much heart and sensibility, like you said, even at the end, it's not like, well, you know, I'm gay. Obviously, I'm gay. You're gay too, I think. Right? I hope. There's <laughs> that would have been so funny, <laughs> but there, there was none of that. Thank God. I mean, none of it. It's a much more beautiful, sincere moment. Like I think that's the thing is when Sharon reveals the fact that just like you're the only man that's ever touched me. That's a big fucking huge that's moment. A big moment. But it's played so underhandedly. It's played in just such a way. It's like, you know, man, this this also happened. Like I I never really got with anybody. You could have easily seen the big one. Just like I never had a man touch me after you. Like it could have been so oh, much exactly. more stupid and showy versus that. It's it plays it so it's hits so much more. It just reveals it offhandedly, but in a way that's still very direct. And even to the point to where I was so happy that it didn't end up either A, them kissing, or B, in bed. Just the way it ended, I thought, was so beautiful and touching. Where he's just got his head on his shoulder and he's rubbing his hair. I mean, dude, god damn it, I'm getting all fucking emotional again. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Fuck everyone. This movie, shit. <laughs> that's adam's oscar clip just like this movie made me feel things right. i don't like to feel feelings god damn it <laughs> it's also a good sign of actually showing black sexuality usually you have films where you have a sex scene they do in certain angles where they feel like it's just they people don't want to see it but they don't do the same sort of actions for white counterparts like, especially with homosexuality, you could show intimacy without needing to have people in bed. Like, it may actually be one of the uh, detractors for Brokeback Mountain because they just went at it, but they still had the beautiful emotional stuff. Moonlight just shows it as a natural thing instead of just, yeah, I'm a dealer and I'm a cook. Want to have sex? Okay. Yeah, Look for the Oscar that. B remake, The Cook and the Dealer coming this november <laughs> <This is nice. laughs> uh but but no i think what also works obviously like we've mentioned like javante Rhodes, but also a lot of credit to andre holland and all the other actors who portrayed the younger versions of sharon and, and uh, kevin which for sharon uh, the youngest version is alex hibbert the teen version is ashton sanders and then javante Rhodes is the adult version and then uh the childhood version of kevin is uh jaden peener Jarrell Jerome plays teen Kevin, and then, as I mentioned, Andre Holland. What's so great is the fact that, apparently, none of these actors, like, met with each other or really looked at each other's footage, which is insane, especially for Chiron, where each of those actors feels genuinely like the same person who obviously has evolved with each step, but has so much of that same personality that lingers throughout, particularly anytime any of those three are at a table and they have their arms crossed, and they're kind of, like, looking off into the distance, or looking down and being awkward, it feels just like, holy fuck, this is the same guy. This is clearly the same guy from each age, because mm -hmm. that's always something when you, like, watch movies, is, okay, child actor to adult actor doesn't always fit. 
it's seamless with this movie, and I think it's pretty incredible. Credit to Barry Jenkins. People just think a director just appoints where the camera should be pointed at. Like, they have to interact with the actors. That really shows that Barry Jenkins has been pretty much short-shrifted with the Best Director nominations for three, four years now. If you look at them all three side by side, they look like they could maybe be cousins. They don't look all that the same. But the way he directed them with their nuances or their looks or even their pattern of speech or their body language, I mean, like you said, Thomas, it's seamless. Like there was not one second where I'm like, nah, it doesn't really look like him. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's him. Absolutely. What the hell? He's got a time machine. And through the tears, I'm trying to figure out time travel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only time I would argue it kind of feels like, and this is probably my smallest, littlest complaint with the movie, is maybe Jarrell Jerome as teen Kevin does not quite resemble either the younger version or adult version of Kevin. I would say that's the one thing. I think it's mostly like the uh, facial structure. That's the one yeah. time. But at the same time, that actor's so great. And his chemistry with Ashton Sanders works as like two people who are like, oh, hey, you know, we, we know each other. We're, we've been friends for a while. We've known each other through school. But then when they come together on the beach, and I'm sorry I phrased it that way now. I, I really was going phrasing it that way. <laughs> I didn't mean that. That was not an intended pun for once. Not a pun intended. Um, the way that those two characters just meet and interact on the beach, and then it's a very simple, honest moment where the two of them, you know, interact this way, it could come off in a way that feels, you know, a lot more sort of, like, laughable and silly to if it was done poorly. But in that yeah, way, it's... Or very, exploitive. Or, or exploitive, yeah. that's true. It feels, it's very small, it's very intimate, and it's very beautiful, and I think it especially comes off when um, you have Ashton Sanders um, getting dropped off and he just has that smile. It's not like a big showy, just like, oh, I just met the boy of my dreams. It's just like, I had a moment. That was great. It's one of the wonderful ones where I got to be myself. And I got to interact with someone in a sexual way I've wanted to, but couldn't because of this, you know, neighborhood that completely is homophobic and awful. It's such a great, small, beautiful moment that really showcases just how great this movie can be in very subtle doses. In fact, when the encounter uh, first starts to play out, when, the, you know, they give each other a look and they, they're moving in slowly to kiss each other the whole time. I'm going, no fucking way. Finally, this kid catches a goddamn break. And then the very next day I'm like, no, no, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> he finally found love. Son of a bitch. You it, know, it like I, I said, want the Adam Thomas commentary for moonlight. Now <laughs> it would just be me yelling, It'd be me yelling and sobbing. <laughs> but I love the fact that it's, it's not even like, oh, I found love. It's just like, I got to be myself with a person. He didn't have to hide for no. five minutes. Yes. He didn't have to like be so reserved. He could be himself with this guy. And it's it's very beautiful. And I think it, it especially shows off something else I really love about this movie, just from my own upbringing, probably the biggest thing I can relate to, because uh, Barry Jenkins, shout out fellow FSU grad, this is part of, I think, a great unofficial trilogy for the uh, distribution company uh, A24 of their Florida trilogy because I'm a Florida native in case you didn't know and I think this movie along with Spring Breakers is the first one and then the one that would follow this up is Florida Project get everything right about the state which is all like the griminess all the shittiness all of like the racism homophobia all of the negative aspects and then the occasional beauty that comes across I think especially like on that scene on the beach it's a beautiful, intimate moment. It's also on, like, one giant, large Miami beach. 
that looks gorgeous in the moonlight. And such a great factor of this, or especially like when, um, probably the big iconic image of the movie, when Mahershala Ali is teaching young Chiron to swim as well. I think it's that across beautifully as well. Just like, there's so much grime and dirt and awfulness around this entire place, but there's a hidden beauty within that really comes across. And I say this as, you know, because Florida gets to be the butt of the joke, and it is a joke in a lot of respects, but I think all three of those movies do such a great job portraying the state for all of the negative and occasionally positive aspects that it has. You know, I never actually look at it from that perspective because I forgot The Spring Breakers was an A24 film, but I am completely fine with a double feature of Moonlight and The Florida Project, even though I have issues with the ending, but... I agree. Both show uh, interesting aspects of Florida that really get overlooked, especially with advertising in the media. Like people only think of Disney World and Miami. Like no one cares about the actual people. And I feel like that actually is the highest accolade I can give for a Moonlight is the entire cast. Like Marshall Lee and uh, Naomi Harris do get the recognition, but I feel like even some of the actors we haven't even mentioned, like uh, Janelle Monet. She was in for, there for a few scenes, but she still shined with someone as great as Mahershala Ali by her side. Because this is the year that she popped as really an actress, because uh, she was obviously known as a musician prior, and then she had the double whammy of this and Hidden Figures, which Hidden Figures is obviously it's much more of an oscar Beatty movie, but she shines in that, alongside obviously two really great actresses with uh, Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer. Um, obviously, they're, they're great, but then her in the middle of it, she really is like the breakout star there and here she also displays a lot of that especially um when it's like something small once again like having Chiron make a bed and how you can tell like she sees like this kid is clearly has something on his mind but I'm gonna become more of like a motherly figure to him and teach him how to do just something simple but gonna kind of chide him along the way she feels so warm and inviting but at the same time very grounded and real yeah you know she's got sympathy for him but she's not gonna let him get away with shit either she was fantastic in this movie too, though, and the, her and um, Juan they felt even even though they only shared the screen what maybe two scenes did feel like a genuine couple, like it felt like there was a history between the two of them. It, it just they bounced off each other incredibly well, and uh, uh, dude, I'll watch anything Ali's in. I mean, the fact of the matter is, he's he, god damn, is he fucking good? He was what on screen for what? 12 minutes, something like that. He's one of the bigger examples of an Oscar winner for like less than 20 minutes of screen time. What is so great about his character and what sticks is what, how his sort of lessons and his sort of regrets pass along to Chiron, where especially a moment that is so underrated to me, but the moment that really sort of hit me after, obviously. All the stuff that happens in the middle section is so brutal, but the first bit of the third act that hit me hard was seeing him dressed up, and he's like, and I'm like, oh my god, he's dressed up like fucking Juan, he's mm-hmm. and you're finding out he's a drug dealer. It's just like, oh my god, it just carried with him. Like oh, the, yeah. he was the only positive sort of paternal influence in his life, and he carried that to be I should be a drug dealer because that's who like my biggest role model was, and that like just hit me really hard too. That's an underrated moment. I think just the moment of seeing him dressed up, just like oh my god, he went down the same path. It hurts so much, and you you are with Andre Holland when he says just like, um, wait, you're you're turning, man. What? Why are you doing that? Well, that's not you. And he says like, you think you know me? Yeah. Through the chest, just like oh, hard. <laughs> what got me was that I realized 
he calls himself Black, which obviously was a nickname from Kevin, but going to Marsha Ali's uh, a moment after swimming with uh, with Little Chiron, like he explains the original title of the of the play when he's running around in Moonlight at Midnight with all the kids, like this woman says, you look blue. And Little Chiron took that as, does that mean that's why people call you blue? And he says, no one calls me blue. But people call him black, and that stuck with him to just mill it together. Like, he still sees Mahershala as, like, the ultimate perfect example. But even as he's emulating him, he still had that insecurity and referred to himself not by his birth name, but by a nickname. That was what really got me, as just as much as him just being a drug dealer looking like Mahershala Ali. Nobody can tell you who you are. You gotta decide that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give me the Oscar! I just delivered that perfectly, <laughs> motherfuckers! Supporting actor, please! Oh, God. Well, we've talked about this movie a lot, and we could go on forever on it, honestly, obviously. But you know what? Let's uh, wrap up our thoughts here. Jonathan, your final thoughts on Moonlight. This is one of the few recent... Oscar Best Picture winners that I can say that everyone can enjoy and should definitely check out if they haven't. Like this, surprisingly, I didn't know about the statistic. Obviously, it's the first uh, LGBT film to win an Oscar, but the first film to feature an all-black cast. Even in my mind, I was about to say, what about 12 Years a Slave? I'm like, oh yeah, the slave owners. I really dug this entire cast. Barry Jenkins is a wonderful director. And he's still doing great work. The cinematography is gorgeous. There's very few things that I can actually complain about. And I want this movie to be remembered far more for itself rather than its connection with La La Land with that whole slip up. Adam? Uh, well, you know, obviously I was fangirling over the movie the whole episode just because it is the first time I've seen it. But with that being said, there there is no question that I will watch this again and probably again. And probably again, I I can't stress enough how much I loved this movie and how much everybody should see it. And it's funny, you know, I just recently watched another movie that was up this year, you know, Hell or High Water. And I mean, these are my two favorite movies that I've seen in a long time. It's just, they're so different, but I'm just saying it's just odd that they came out the same year. But this movie, it's like, I can't wait to watch it again. And I can't wait to have people who haven't seen it or maybe didn't give it a chance, you know, have them watch it and just so I could talk to them about it and see what they might have noticed in it that I didn't the first time I watched it. I mean, the cast is just fucking amazing in this movie. The the cinematography, the soundtrack, like I said earlier, it's just it's a beautiful movie. It's and like I said, I don't like using that term. I think I've used it once on the show before, but this is a beautiful movie. I, I love this movie. Well, and to be fair, Adam, to you and several other people who might not have seen it, you're not in a small bunch because um, it only made about $60 million, which, to be fair, made up its very small budget very quickly. But by that statistic, it is the second lowest grossing Best Picture winner, only behind The Hurt Locker. Um, so it was definitely a movie that, like, when it like won, it was definitely it was over. A lot of movies that made a lot more money, like La La Land, made, like, some $150 million or something Yeah, like that was that. a juggernaut. Yeah, yeah that, that was a huge Best Picture winner in terms of box office, and this one, obviously, it it wasn't as much. And I do agree that I think it got kind of lost the shuffle with that connection with La La Land at the Oscars, which I'm I'm a fan of La La Land, but at the same time, I can definitely agree that I think Moonlight's the better movie because it's not as 
big as I was showing it, like maybe a La La Land can be at certain points. Um, but um, I think that with uh, Moonlight, it's it's like we mentioned, it's so subtle, it's so understated, it's so beautiful with what it's presenting, with like how the cast is presented or the uh, direction. Like this is a moment I forgot about; we didn't mention it. Um, but the sort of biggest sort of showy moment in terms of cinematography is the bit where Adult Chiron picks up his buddy and they go out to make a drug deal, and the camera is hooked onto the window, so he opens the door, and it closes with him. And that's, like, the biggest showy sort of cinematography moment, and it's sort of just like, hey, mount the camera on the door. <laughs> but it, it, it keeps you immersed in what's going on at the same time. It's, uh, it's a movie that, I, as you mentioned, I think Javante Rhodes really was a standout for me when I watched this first time, though also a lot of credit to Andre Holland, who we didn't talk about a lot. But he interacting off Javante is so wonderful. Like, the scene where they're at the restaurant, and he's like, oh, hey, this guy just came a couple of weeks ago and put on this song. Mm-hmm. And it's that is such a beautiful moment. And especially, there's a lot of sexuality in that moment where just Andre Holland turns on the song and he just puts his hand on his chest. And it says a lot without being too overt. Oh, I yeah, think. dude. The way they're yeah. looking at each other, too. I mean, yes. oh, yeah. I would definitely say it's one of the better ones of this decade, but at the same time, it's also one of the ones that I could actually watch again. Because there's one like, for example, 12 Years a Slave, which we kind of mentioned. That's a great movie. I don't know if I could ever watch that movie again, because it's kind of rough to sit through, necessarily, versus this is a much more tender, intimate, beautiful story that makes you feel a lot of emotions, but at the same time, it does so in a way that's very watchable, very engaging. If you have not seen Moonlight, definitely uh, give it a chance. It's free on uh, Amazon Prime. Right now. As yep. we're recording, yes, it is. Now, uh, gentlemen, let's steer away from this conversation. <laughs> now I can do the puns, motherfuckers, because this movie deserves it. It is Driving Miss Daisy. My mother's a little high-strung. She can say anything she likes, but she can't fire you. I don't need you. I don't want you. And I don't like you saying I'm rich. What are you doing? I'm trying to drive you to the stove. Morgan Freeman, Jessica Tandy, Dan Aykroyd, driving Miss Daisy. Did you have the air condition checked? I don't know what for. You don't never allow me to turn it on. Hush up. Goodbye. Good luck. Good God. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> I don't have anything. Racism. <laughs> Woo! So, Driving Miss Daisy was the best picture winner of 1989, uh, came out December 15th, 1989, uh, from director Bruce Beresford, uh, the Australian director, and uh, is written by Alfred Urey, based on his play of the same name, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1988. Oh, fuck. Speaking of awards, maybe not deserved. I I haven't seen the play. In middle school, I've read the stage play. And it was all part of adaptation. So we also watched the movie in comparison. Really comparing the screenplay to the stage play, I'd say maybe three or four scenes aren't in the play. And like one line, like the racist cop in Georgia had like an extra line. Like I think it's pretty much just one to one. Oh, that's good. Give the racist cop more lines. Oh, <laughs> that's God. what we all need, uh, clearly. Um, <laughs> but this was um, the best picture winner, like I said, 1989. It was up against Field of Dreams, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poet Society, and My Left Foot. 
Um, and it also oh, Jesus, are you <laughs> fucking come on? Like I was going to say, like, oh, good movie. Oh, good movie. Wow, great movie. <laughs> Wait, Driving Miss. Oh, okay. And um, it also won at the time uh, Best Actress for Jessica Tandy, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Makeup, which I would at least argue of those, I don't think the makeup one was undeserved, necessarily. I don't think it was bad old age makeup for the time. Yeah, Yeah, it was alright. But this was my pick, um, and this was one I also hadn't seen, but always got sort of a bad reputation um, for what we're kind of mentioning, the other movies it was nominated against, and even ones it wasn't technically. Um, for the best picture category, like the biggest uh, issue around this time, the biggest controversy was this was the year that Do the Right Thing was also nominated. Um, I think we could argue a better movie about race, maybe. Yeah, yeah well, I don't yeah, know. I don't know that we need to argue it. <laughs> I <laughs> no. Gotta be no, no, no. And that was only nominated for screenplay and for Danny Aiello for best supporting actor. Um, and of course, like many in Oscar conversation, um, the sort of conversation around this movie has less become oh, it won for best picture and more. Oh, it won over any number of these other movies that came out that year. I picked this also because uh, the sort of the Oscar timing of it, uh, because along with, say, the connection of If Beale Street Could Talk being nominated this year, another movie called Green Book was nominated this year, uh, starring Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali of Moonlight. Um, and that one got a lot of comparisons to uh, Driving Miss Daisy for obvious, like, sort of plot familiarities um, and racial themes as well. Um, and... You know, I wasn't a big fan of Green Book, I'll say, but having watched Drive Miss Daisy, Green Book's at least a more engaging movie. Like, Viggo Mortensen, I have a lot of problems with that character, mainly because he's, like, a Olive Garden-level Italian, um, oh. which, and oh, Viggo's, God. I think, quite frankly, not that great in that movie. <laughs> but he at least has a bit more of a warmth to this, you know, character who's of his time and has a lot of confusing thoughts about, you know, race and what that means. At least he feels not as malicious necessarily as our title character here. Because my biggest problem with this movie really is I get what it's going for. Because it wants to be a movie where it's like, oh, you know, Morgan Freeman is under the employee of Jessica Tandy and through several decades of being together as driver to client, he slowly teaches her about, you know, being a bit more sensitive racially and all this other stuff, especially when it leads to the ending that happens here. It wants to kind of portray that in a hushed way, in a way that a lot of reviewers at the time, like I watched Siskel and Ebert review, and they talk about the idea that like, oh, this isn't a movie about big sweeping moments, it's down to earth, it's a lot more intimate, and these characters oh. don't suddenly change, which I guess is true. Uh, you know, you gotta be invested enough to want to see a character change, and, um... Miss Daisy can go fuck herself. She's awful. <laughs> 100%. I watched this whole fucking movie the whole time, and I'm like, all right, so this is going to be the bit where, like, he brings her flowers or, or something happens to her. She's going to be like, oh, oak, and she's going to be totally cool with him. She has to get fucking dementia first before yep. she's like, you're my best friend. She's lost her goddamn mind. <laughs> That's how she learns to love. Oh, once Morgan Freeman started talking, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> they're doing it. Oh, because, Adam, you saw this around the time it came out. I'm assuming, yes, right? I did. Yeah, I was also a wee lad. And, you know, this was a big movie when it came out. My mom saw it and everybody saw I watch it. And I just remember thinking, I really like that movie. Probably because Dan Aykroyd was in it. Who oh, the Academy it. awarded for like, wow, you didn't play a Dan Aykroyd style character. Oscar right. nomination for you. Which to be fair, right. 
He's one of at least the better things about the movie, I'd say. He's uh, like yeah, his fucking accent. It's it's not it's not the best southern accent, no. Um it, you can oh. honestly watching this movie with his makeup, there's just a certain point where I'm like did he get the idea for nothing but trouble by looking at himself I in makeup? Really... You know what this makeup would could use? A penis nose. That's what this could oh, use. God. This is just Oh fucking hell. I okay, go ahead, Jonathan. Adam saw like when it first came out. I basically saw it ten years later. So I that's still a long gap of like nearly twenty years since I've actually watched the movie. But the one thing that I was constantly defending about this movie because Travis Miss Daisy has that stigma of just being that that bad movie about racism with the woman and her driver. A lot of people love to bring up Uncle Tom's in media, and I really felt, which Morgan Freeman even said he was intending for Hoke to be like, he's not subservient to, to Miss Daisy. He does step up and talk back to her, like try to make her see that she is an old woman that needs him and he needs a job. Like, that aspect I have been defending for so long, but I realized after my, my basically first watching in so long, he is the grandfather of all the mystical Negroes. Every single time we would have a white person who has some sort of trouble, either with golf or with being with their family, they just get this old, sagely black man or black woman or just any sort of ethnic person i'll help you with whatever your problem is with some good folksiness and a can-do attitude and sometimes a weird twang that's why i'm like half and half on hoke like he's a character but he creates a horrible stereotype and everything else about it, jessica tandy is awful like she's just awful just to be awful and uh i was surprised that patty lapone was in this movie like i for- completely forgot about mm-hmm. Bully's wife yeah, she is a good actress who's just in this movie. Like, thinking back to all these other poorly executed tales of racism that we've been getting in Oscar nominees like The Help and Green Book, it's sad to say that we're actually making progress when you look at this is what we had in 1989 versus what we have in 20. 20- 11 or 2012 and now in 2019 they're not the best movies like i would sometimes defend green book but then you had the director say something ridiculous about how it's a movie that brings people together it doesn't you have the writer tweeting out ra- uh, racist rhetoric from donald trump who is the son of the guy Viggo mortensen's playing by the way oh yeah and they didn't consult the character Marshall Ali's surviving family at all. Because they're like, oh, we didn't know any of those relatives were around. Um, but anyway, anyway, we're not talking about Green, but we're talking about Driving Miss Daisy. Keep going. <laughs> the point being is that Driving Miss Daisy is so bad on its execution with Miss Daisy. Like, come on. You're an old woman. You need a driver. You're, you're rich now. You can't keep bringing up your, your childhood memories of, oh, man, we used to just eat, like, snow because he couldn't get water or whatever nonsense she was saying. Like, you're 60-something and your son runs a huge company. You rich. Shut up. (laughs) Well, no, especially, like, for me, when I was watching it consistently, I'm like, okay, there's got to be some point where I have to, like, grow someone invested in her. 
And, like, the only time she ever really treats Hoke with any kind of decency before she gets dementia, like you mentioned, is condescendingly teaching him how to read at a graveyard, which is... God, I forgot about that. <laughs> which is, like, such a insulting scene where he's just like, I don't know how to read, Miss Daisy. And she's just like, well, what does that sound like? A buh? Buh? Is that what it sounds like? She's like, well, you're being nasty, but you know what? Maybe there's something else. I'm gonna try with this movie. Maybe there's some other reason that we can get invested in her. And then the moment that completely killed that and turned the whole movie against me <laughs> was the bit where they find out that the temple was bombed on their way over. And she is in the back, like, crying, like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And he tries to draw a bit of a connection where it's like, you know, I mean, it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, my friend's dad got, you know, lynched, and it was a horrible moment. We just saw it happen. And you would think that maybe not a big showy moment of, like, you know what, that's such a terrible thing, and I'm so sorry, and maybe we can connect as people. I don't need that. But what I don't need is her being like, how dare you bring that story up? What does that have anything to do with what's going on here? That was the moment where I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> You're lacking basic human empathy on any level. Get 100%. dementia. Fuck off. <laughs> right. 100%. Because something affected her, so now it's, you know, it matters. And, and, well, dude, and not even that. So she, she fucking half-ass, real bitchy, like, she tries to teach him how to read. Then she gives him the fucking book. Which, okay, whatever, you know, blah, 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 it's not a present, I don't do presents. So you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a little hope here. Then she goes to go see Martin Luther King Jr. speak without him! She makes him stay out in the goddamn car! Okay, that was a little bit on Hope being like, bitch, you should have told me beforehand instead of when we were driving. Like, that's yeah. the type of fire that I like about Hope. Like, no, no, if no, you I want agree. Me. I agree, but then she could have just been a decent person and relented and be like, yeah, you're right. You know, no, no, no. I no. I, I, I'm just trying to say, like, at least Hoke had the agency. Like, I feel like even if it is Martin Luther King, if this person who's been so cantankerous with me just tries to be nice, just this one time, I would be just as offended as Hoke. But and the way that she says it also is so condescending. We're just like, you know, my son said, "Hey, maybe I should bring you to this." Wouldn't that be silly? You wouldn't want to go to that, right? And he says, "Like, well, you know what? Maybe I would. And maybe you should have told me earlier." And she gets offended by that. And then he says the big line that would have, like, I think, actually affected her. Maybe of like, oh, you know, some people say things keep changing, but they some things stay the same. While he's going to open the fucking door, and then she like slams it in his face, like "fuck you," and then leaves. That's supposed to be like a big cathartic moment. <laughs> it's like outside to nobody. He says that to no one. Yeah. It's just like as Hoke said with the whole fact that things, some things are changing, but things are pretty much staying the same. Like this is a good reflection of how the Academy is. Cause like, yeah, we talk about do the right thing being pretty much uh, shut out. Like kind of like how Beale Street is now. But uh, the whole point was there are so many young filmmakers who are who are actually doing great things that were hungry like oliver stone did born on the fourth of july this year that, that year the dead poet society had a great funny man doing a dramatic role with robin williams like there are all these great emotional and and also resonant stories and character arcs and this wins yep. because we had an old lady who was a very prominent actress in the history of Hollywood getting an award. I'll, I'll say that I don't think Jessica Tandy's performance is necessarily bad. I think it's just a problem of she is portraying such a despicable, 
unengaging character, but she's doing a good job at it. I think that's the trouble with it. Because honestly, if we even got any kind of introspection to like her thought process on this, because I, I would argue Dan Aykroyd is at least the better character because we do get a bit of an introspection with him, the way that he runs his business. There's that scene where he talks to Jessica Tandy about, um, you know, I want to go to the Martin Luther King thing, but you know, I have my business constituents who might not want to associate with me if I do go there. The apathy of society and racial evil that's going on there. It gives you a bit more introspection to this guy who isn't necessarily intending to be evil, but is supporting an awful institution by the, what his actions are. I think that instantly makes him a more interesting character than Miss Daisy's just like, fuck you. I hate everybody. Oh, yeah. This is actually one of the subtle things about it. Like, he, they're Jewish. They're Jewish in the South. So there is that totem pole of, of classism, anti-Semitism, and racism. So... Yeah, he feels so worried because even though he's a prominent businessman, he's still Jewish. That will always be stuck with him. And I feel like that is far more engaging. Like maybe we should have been focusing on Bully trying to deal with working in Atlanta in segregation times. Maybe. Yeah. And also, he's much more enthralling just because he's had to deal with this shit since he was born. He's had to deal with this awful lady. <laughs> Instantly, I'm way more on awful. his side. <laughs> awful. But, I mean... Fuck you and your salmon. <laughs> oh, God. Fuck you with your salmon. <laughs> and and that's another example that Gwyneth was talking about where, like, that, of where the Hope character exists to, like, show her a lesson where she's just like, he stole something and I'm gonna get him for this. He's gonna get fired. I hate this guy. I can't believe he'd do that. And she's like, oh, uh, Miss Daisy, I'm sorry. I um, took a can of your salmon. I got another one from the Piggly Wiggly. You mind if I just put it in the cabinet? Like, not giving him the benefit of the doubt at all that you might do that. Yeah, of course not. No. You shouldn't even give him a chance. Nope. Now, obviously, I I 100% refuse to do the accent. <laughs> um, just because, nope. Why? <laughs> and you're referring specifically to Morgan Freeman's accent. Yes. yes. Yeah, 100%. It is so just foghorn, leghorn, mixed with Song of the South. Mixed with, I mean, just the worst, most offensive thing in... in I mean, what? I would argue Dan Aykroyd's more Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> yeah. I... Well, Dan Aykroyd, well, to be fair, he looks more like Foghorn Leghorn. Well, that's true, yes. They, he could play live-action Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> if we ever got that movie. <laughs> uh, but you know what, Yotham, how do you feel about the accent? Do you agree with what Adam's talking about on that? No, I, I honestly look at it from the fact that it's a specific era, a specific region of the South that... While it feels ridiculous to hear someone say that in 1989 to let alone 2019, it's still a reflection of the dialect that you would hear in the South. And I feel like Morgan Freeman, who also did Hoke in, uh, on Broadway, that he had the actual seriousness and a nuance to actually use such a ridiculous dialect to work. I'm not saying it's phenomenal, but it works. I feel does, like, does it work though, or is it kind of? <laughs> especially when you compare it to all of the maids that are in this movie, where Idella is just meow, meow, or pretty much like that type of level. Like they're either that or they don't speak at all. She's straight up Hattie McDaniel at points. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I do agree with Jonathan. I think like it, it doesn't feel like he's going to Uncle Remus levels that you compared it to <laughs> necessarily. No. no. Uh, <laughs> not not necessarily. He's not singing zippity doo dah at a certain point. Um, but 
I, I still feel that, you know, at the same time, I think what's more the problem is that Hoke is constantly on that teeter-totter with what Jonathan's talking about, between being, like, a genuine, actual, three-dimensional person and being a voice of reason that Miss Daisy shoves off. It's it, he, he can't really... He's rarely his own person. I think the, most of the scenes where that happens are when he's actually talking like Dane Aykroyd. Like, when he... You, his introduction where, like, he helps that guy out at the elevator, tells him where the thing is to, like, switch it off, and impresses Dane Aykroyd a bit with his knowledge. Like, there's there's scenes like that where I think Hoke gets to actually be, like, a real dimensional person. Then he's around Miss Daisy, and partially because of, like, the situation he's in with her, um, and how he has to behave around it necessarily, but also because of the way the script's written, it just gives him so much more of like a, now, Miss Daisy, you know, um, maybe we should be a bit more simpatico on this. There are moments that kind of work that I'm, o- that I'm okay with in a vacuum, but it's part of a larger whole of, yeah, th- this character is still awful. This guy, scene by scene, is either really awesome or just just plain subservient like it's it's a give and take but there's a lot of taking that's all i can say no yeah and i think we should especially talk about as the movie sort of goes into its ending i is where really i agree that there's so many problems where it's like at the martin luther king speech thing um you can tell that she is making some sort of change she looks over the empty chair and she kind of looks contemplatively it's jessica tandy's probably best moment in the whole movie and you're like oh you know what maybe this is going to be her not completely changing, but turning over some kind of leaf. And that leaf is dementia. Because in the literally the next scene, she's just like, Oh, my papers. Oh, I need to make sure my children's homework is graded. Oh, what am I going to do? And she goes very over the top in a way that also feels kind of offensive to somebody who might have dementia. It doesn't feel great. Um, and then... Like Adam mentioned, that after this huge dementia episode where Morgan Freeman's trying to calm her down, that's when she says, Hoke, you're my best friend. It's a moment that wants to be earned and is completely unearned. 100%. It takes her slipping, like completely falling into the abyss, to be like, all right, now I'll let you in a little bit. You, you, you old black man. You taught me something now that I forgot how to be a hateful, fucking dirty piece of shit. Oh, I hate her so much. <laughs> well, Adam's given all these Oscar-winning performances this this week. Oh. And the thing is, like, look, dude, think about Jessica Tandy's performance in this. I'm like, man, yeah, she deserved the Oscar. I'd argue that Fried Green Tomatoes. She deserved the Oscar maybe for that performance. She was fantastic in it. If you want to talk an older Jessica Tandy. But in this one, she didn't really do anything but just have a sour look on her face. But the makeup. She put on makeup, Adam. (laughs) She was 82. How much was 81? She didn't put on any makeup. They put her (laughs) in glasses and dyed her hair a, a darker gray in the beginning. That was it. Again, this is the late 80s Academy Awards. They're all old people, old white people who act. Are you trying to tell me that white people run Hollywood? Uh, I I think you need to sit down. (laughs) Yeah, where it's like, what, we just recently had the Academy body is now like one third, like, of different colors? One quarter. One One quarter. quarter. Yes, they just turned that over. Just, one, quarter, just recently. one quarter white, right? Isn't that what we're saying? What's going on? <laughs> Honey, we have to sit down. 
Um, but but no, also then we, we were talking about this scene, the bit where she's actually in the old folks' home, and it's the scene that I knew about before I ever saw this movie is where it's just like it's a quiet moment where the two get together, had a Thanksgiving dinner, and he feeds her the food. That's supposed to be this big moment, just like, oh, guys, can't you see, in a world where there's so much strife and so much contention between races, can't we get together and just have a quiet meal and help each other out? You know, the middle-aged liberal white fantasy (laughs) that's just, like, burst onto the screen with this terrible moment that's just like, no! Once again, not earned. At all. But the problem is that it's a sign of Still, a black person having to I serve a white agree. person. One hundred percent agree. Oh, you taught me so much tolerance now that I've lost my mind. Get, feed me my pumpkin pie. <laughs> my hands don't work no more. Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Tandy has resurrected herself for the show. <laughs> oh no! Kill oh, her! Kill zombie her. Jessica Tandy. <laughs> oh, she's a zombie. Kill her! <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it, 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 I agree, yeah, it definitely just becomes so subservient. And I think another factor, really, you mentioned sort of the Uncle Tomism of this movie, it's a shame that, unfortunately, this kind of typecasted Morgan Freeman for a bit in that role. Because you can tell, Clint Eastwood watched this movie, and he's just like, I know what I'm going to do with Morgan Freeman. <laughs> and right. did that several times over with Morgan Freeman. <laughs> um, even in really great movies like Unforgiven, that would win Best Picture a couple of years later. It's Morgan Freeman as Clint Eastwood's black friend. <laughs> that happened a lot. Um, and th- and unfortunately, it kind of like affected him for a bit until he kind of wormed out of that and became more of a leading man on his own right. Um, and I guess that's sort of, as a thing before we get to closing thoughts, um, has this movie really impacted culture that much in any way is there any lasting thread now i'm almost 30 years later for driving miss daisy in this modern world yep it's called green book you already talked about it <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah the help green book crash legend of bagger vance mr church with eddie murphy oh god oh fuck i forgot about that one. Oh, i wow. feel like there's another big one i'm forgetting oh i'm sh- oh oh monsters ball with Billy Bob Thornton and Halle Berry. Eh, that was a little arguable. Yeah. Six shades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess on that whimper of a note, let's go into our final thoughts then on Driving Miss Daisy. Jonathan, our guest, start. Driving Miss Daisy has the legacy of being the movie that should not have won because of racism. It it really perpetuates the uh, aspects of of people's views of racism being just individuals just being mean to minorities. But even though it has moments where it shows the uh, systemic aspects, especially being in Georgia, yet never actually explaining it or giving it context, it is a very tone-deaf film that deserves 99% of its flack, but I will defend only that 1% of half of Morgan Freeman's performance. Jessica Tandy just gave a performance for her to get an Oscar, which did it, and Dan Aykroyd's career got worse after this, so I don't want to fully blame it on Driving Miss Stacy, but it's probably because of nothing but trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit more on him. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for, perhaps as the writer, director, producer, it might have been his fault. 
Um, Adam. Yo, just straight up, I'm not going to say a lot, but fuck this movie. Ugh, Jessica Tandy. Not like the person or, or the what used to be a person. That's just disgusting and going down a road I want to go down. But the character. What a piece of shit. Drive her off the fucking cliff. I don't give a shit about her. I don't give... Like, literally, I just... I, 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 fuck this movie. There are much better movies to watch with Jessica Tandy. Like, you know what? Battery's not included, even. Oh, my God! I love that fucking movie. Good good call on that one. Yeah, watch Battery's yeah, not included. Yeah, yeah. It's a cute little movie, and she's really yeah. good in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, or Fried Green Tomatoes. Or Fried Green other... Tomatoes. Obviously, she's a classic Hollywood actress who was acting for decades prior to this. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, the sentiments are all around are pretty conclusive. It's one of definitely the worst Best Picture winners I've ever seen. It's not the worst. We almost covered the worst yeah, Crash. And we might have been f- even more angry than we are right now <laughs> if we were sitting here talking about fucking Crash. Um, but it does, you know, I, I agree that, like, the systemic issues, much like in our own society, uh, continue and trickle from Driving Miss Daisy, as it's, it's like I mentioned, this sort of, you know, middle-aged white liberal fantasy of like, oh, can't we all just get along, even though we aren't really confronting each other about serious issues? That's it, it, just this movie in a nutshell, and I'm amazed the play won the Pulitzer Prize if it's this close <laughs> to the fucking uh, script that's here, and I don't think any of the actors are necessarily terrible, but it is definitely just they're saddled with very dated, very underwhelming material that I would have said, oh, maybe it worked for the time, but then again, like I said, this is the same year as Goddamn Do the Right Thing, which is, as we mentioned, inarguably the far better film about dealing with like racial relations with both racist characters and you know, black characters who have been under persecution at the same time. And it's also, it's a great crowd pleaser that goes into super serious moments. It's one of Spike Lee's better movies that deals with a lot of the same issues. So this movie at the time was just sort of like an old guard example of just like, oh, isn't this not just a sweet little movie to do this? And it has a sweet exterior, but inside, much like Jessica Tandy's character of Miss Daisy, it has a bitter, bitter core that just radiates bile. Yeah, it's like the Academy is run by white people or something. Oh, no, I think Adam's no. getting the dementia. He's forgetting we <laughs> talked about this earlier. <laughs> Jonathan, you're my best friend. I'm not going to do the accent. No, no, no. And as we steer away from that, uh, that is the end of our discussion on the two Best Picture winners. But we got a little bit more before we go. Um, first off, we got some feedback to read, which um, if you go to the Double Edge Devil Bill Facebook and Twitter page at DEDBpod, every Monday we put a feeler out for like related to our topic about, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite examples of this particular topic we're doing? So naturally we did Best Picture winners. And uh, first up, Brian Kane says, my personal favorites are both about the toll war takes on people, the Hurt Locker and the Deer Hunter. And then Forrest Gump being at Shawshank Redemption is just plain farcical. I think everyone yeah. kind of came around to that conclusion <laughs> after yeah, a bit. So. Even though I remember really loving Forrest Gump when I was younger, I f- dread revisiting it. I haven't revisited it since high school. I, oh, it's in the back pocket, buddy. Oh, I, I, I have to face that eventually, Adam. It's yes, warranted. Yeah. I did rewatch part of it over Christmas with family. Like, I'd still say Tom Hanks's performance still works. But yeah, a lot of the sappiness of the story of all that, like, I can understand now, like, why people would be still be bitter about it. But I'm just happy the Hurt Locker beat Avatar, really. Right. Oh that God. was great. Thank God. Yes, I agree. Well, especially given the, the juxtaposition of the lowest grossing best picture winner of all time 
beating the highest grossing movie of all time. And not to mention the fact that it was ex-wife versus ex-husband at that point. There's too much juicy details there. Um, and she, it, it's also the better film, as uh, we can, we've can we covered a bit in a previous episode uh, where we talked about Avatar. Um, but uh, then James Rodriguez says, um, it may be best known for the way it won the Academy Award, but Moonlight is more than that. A masterful tale about one person's struggle to stay true to their self and accept who they are, and mostly told by people at the top of their game. Slants of the Lambs also deserves a mentioning, which is likely to be the only instance of a horror film winning the big prize. Um, on the flip side, Shakespeare in Love is a tiring game of spot the nods to the bard's plays over a generic two hours centered on a dull romance. I'm also not a fan of Annie Hall, especially when Alvy Singer is chlamydia levels of irritating. Hmm. At least right. we agree with Moonlight. Well, that's true, yeah. And I mean, you know, look, there's a lot of reasons to maybe not like Annie Hall um, related to yeah. this. Uh, potentially. <laughs> it's just triple of... Last time I saw that movie, though, was before all of that really sank in about a Woody Allen's past. Sure. That's my biggest struggle is really just like, I, I love a lot of Woody Allen movies. I, there's, I do too, but I can't do it anymore. There, I mean, no, it's good. I have to wait till he dies. <laughs> I think we're all in that I, mode of just like, let's wait till he dies. Then we can I revisit think I some wait, of them. Uh, until like the circumstances of how he dies. <laughs> like, like, it depends on me how he dies. It's painful, <laughs> then I could probably revisit them. I won't fault anyone if they want to go back to his movies. I just feel like if you try to watch movies you haven't seen made by him, I feel like that has a little of ickiness because at least you have the nostalgia or feelings of those past movies. Honestly, I'm surprised people aren't bringing up the fact that Annie Hall beat Star Wars for Best Picture. Like, I feel like that is probably more prominent to bring up nowadays. I mean, yeah, and I mean, it's also, like, there are certain ones, like, I could see myself revisiting Annie Hall in about a decade. I may never be able to see Manhattan again. Uh, but you know what, and you know, he mentioned Shakespeare in Love. That's one of the ones where I would cite as, like, an artist example, where I think that movie's a cute little movie. It's not Saving Private Ryan, which it was up against and infamously won over. Fucking but I think insanity. But, but at the same time, I still think that's a... I enjoy that movie for what it is. It's a cute little sort of historical rom-com. And I think it's another example where the just the stigma of winning Best Picture has more deflated that movie than given it a fair shake. Yeah, I can agree with that. Mm-hmm. Signs of the Lambs is pretty dope, too. Sure, yeah. Signs yeah. of the Lambs is great, dude. Signs of the Lambs. <laughs> Buffalo Bill is still one of the scariest on-screen villains of all time to me. He's terrifying. Even for all the problematic reasons. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, no, sure, it's just him. It's just Ted Levine. It's his voice that makes him scary. Now, the rest of our feedback is feedback about previous episodes. Uh, in reference to our last episode about romance films, uh, Jerry Chandler says, The Room is the more tragic of the two films you covered. At least you see the two of them reunited in Somewhere in Time. Plus, well, you don't laugh throughout the wrong moments that are in Somewhere in Time. I mean, technically, I guess, based on the basic structure of the story, The Room is more yeah. tragic. Yeah, but we don't know what happens if Lisa and Johnny are reunited at the end. We don't know if Johnny's going to be up there waiting for her. Oh, that'd be so mm. great. <laughs> Just the remake of the Somewhere in Time sequence. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, Lisa is beautiful. <laughs> I still love you. I did not hit you. I killed myself. Oh, hi, Mark. You're in hell. Oh. <laughs> and then uh, Stephen D. at Waiting FTH had the same reference to that same romance episode. Um, by fluke of timing, I caught this one on Valentine's Day. How apt. Um, my favorite romances of all time are All of Me, and this is a German movie that translates out to Female 2 Seeks Happy End. 
thank you for subtitles, and across other media, Farscape. Uh, worse is probably anything with either Greg Kinnear or Katherine Heigl. I thought there was one Katherine Heigl romantic film that worked, but... It's Knocked up? Com- Maybe? Yeah, I guess that's the one. It's the dude bro romantic comedy. <laughs> And I like it as good as it gets with Greg Kinnear. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think like you know, Greg Kinnear had. I definitely will agree that problem. Like in the late nineties, he became sort of like the Bill Pullman character in Sleepless in Seattle, where it's just like, oh, yeah. you're the second rate guy that she dumps because you're so nice. Um, but he, he got a lot better once he sort of embraced, especially his comedic chops in like the last ten years or so. He's been so much more. I haven't heard of um, the the German movie he mentioned, but all of me is a great movie. I don't think I've seen all of me. The one with Steve Martin and uh, oh, yeah. Lily Tomlin. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think I've seen it though. Well, get it's, the it's fuck a fuck off a... my show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now you're out. Um, but before you go, also uh, Riley Baldry actually had a suggestion for us, where he says, "I have a suggestion for a future topic for the show as we get closer to the upcoming 2020 presidential campaign. I figure an episode on politically themed movies would be interesting to hear." Recommendations for good and bad movies, Ides of March, and the campaign, respectively. I'm down for this. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty good idea. Uh, um, we actually discussed uh, last time we spoke about potentially if if a certain movie wins Best Picture, that we can maybe uh, shoehorn this topic in there. Don't hold your breath on that. I'm movie. not. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just you know could happen, but eventually I think this will is definitely a topic that we will cover. And, of course, we're referencing Black Panther, the most political film right. of last year. Hey, it is royalty. There, there are plenty of political movies I wouldn't mind covering. And Ides of March and Campaign are pretty good examples, like, good and bad. Though I will say, in the campaign, um, Dylan McDermott's so fucking funny in that. He's, <laughs> he's hilarious in that movie. He steal, There's a point where it's, like, Zach Galifianakis and his wife talking, and Dylan McDermott's just eating cereal in the background of the scene, staring at them. <laughs> and it's the funniest <laughs> fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, but, but no, yeah, I mean, Ides of March also, I, that, that one is sort of like the underrated of George Clooney's recent directorial phase, uh, before he kind of started making bad dad movies after that. (laughs) Suburbicon was the, was one of the biggest disappointments trying to be half of a Coen Brothers movie and half of another movie talking about racism in the most awkward way through the lens of a white guy. Oh, well, you know what? It all comes full circle, doesn't it? It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yes, Mr. Lucas, it does. All right, we want to thank some people before we leave. Um, thanks to Chris Oliver for the theme music using our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarda for the art on our show. She accepts commissions at fiverr2rs.com slash eescarda. And uh, we are going to use you to help pick uh, the two movies at the end of this, Jonathan. But thank you for coming on. And why don't you uh, plug yourself a bit? Where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Facebook, Jonathan Habs McHale, H-A-B as in boy, T-S and Tony, E as in Edward, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Jonathan's with a Y, not a J. And you can also find me on Twitter at Black underscore Gendo. That's Black spelled normally, Gendo, G-E-N-D-O. And I'll bitch about political stuff, anime, and movies. Actually, speaking of that, go watch Alita. It's actually a fun live action anime adaptation. That's the most politically charged statement you've made on the show. I think is that you like anime. 
Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you can find us um, over on at DEDB Pod, which is on Facebook and Twitter. That's where we put out those feelers we mentioned every Monday. Um, and you can also email us with feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at NotTheWho'sTommy. Also, I write about movies at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. I'll probably have an Alita review up at the time uh, that we're recording this. And uh, you can find Adam uh, being driven by me all around. Isn't that right, Adam? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, that and Miss Thomas. <laughs> yes, and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, rate and review us there, and also on any of the other platforms we're on, Podbean, YouTube, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, all those places, because that gets us boosted up a bit. If you rate and review us, it uh, gets more people to notice, and uh, we need the notice. We need your attention, because you like us. You really, really like us. Right? Yeah. We'll even accept an iTunes review that's just that. Yeah. Five stars. <laughs> that's, that's all we really want. Uh, but before we leave, um, it is time to pick our movies for next week. And uh, next week's topic has a bit of a somber note attached to it, uh, because um, we recently lost a great character actor in the form of Dick Miller. Um, we lost him about a month ago, but we decided, we, you know, we want to fit in an episode about him. Because, you know, we've also lost someone like, uh, we should mention, while we still have a foot in the Oscar pool, we recently lost like Albert Finney. You're very celebrated, very multiple Oscar-nominated, great actor. But uh, he got a lot of attention and praise. Dick Miller only gets attention and praise from weirdos like us. It's a shame. Yeah. He's one of the great uh, blue-collar schlubs out there. Maybe the definitive one, I would argue. I would say so. This was the absolute hardest picking I've had to do. Because uh, you have the two bad movies, and I have the two good movies um, related to Mr. Dick Miller. And each of us have assigned number between 1 and 10 for each of those movies. Um, and we would usually each say a number between 1 and 10 to pick each other's good and bad picks. But when we have a guest like Jonathan, he gets the chance to do it. So, Jonathan, between my two good movies, number between 1 and 10. Let's go with number 8. All right. At number six, I uh, have a movie that Dick Miller said was one of his favorites to work on and one of his favorite characters he ever did. It is uh, Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Excellent. I love hey, He's Uncle Willie. Uncle, Uncle Willie. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, at number one, I had actually the movie that many would argue sort of created the Dick Miller persona was his first big collaboration with Roger Corman, uh, his starring vehicle in Bucket of Blood from 1959. Oh, wow. I wouldn't even have thought you would have picked that. Great. It's a very I mean, weird movie. Yeah, it's it's a, incredibly strange. It's such a weird fucking movie. He, he basically kills bohemians, and he turns yeah. them into art. <laughs> it's it's really fun. Um, but now, Jonathan, for Adam's bad picks, number between 1 and 10. Let's go with number 5. At number 3, I have, from 1986, Chopping Mall. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be interesting. Because he's got a name in it. That's like the only thing I mean. that, That's true. There are plenty of bad movies where he's just like security guard or janitor. Right. <laughs> right. It's so hard to pick, man. <laughs> uh, and then um, the other one I had, Space Raiders from 1983. Not as familiar Which, with that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's I haven't pretty even heard bad. of that one. Well, well, you know what? You got a horror double feature when you didn't mean to. No, but then again, he worked a lot in that genre. And we'll definitely talk about all of that uh, when we come back next week. But, Jonathan, thanks once again for doing our picking. Oh, it's a pleasure. At least I picked some good nominees. Mmm, Academy. Aw, damn. (laughs) On that that sick burn, 
it's time to say goodnight, everybody, and we're sorry the show ran three hours long like the Oscars. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> <laughs> See ya, guys. <laughs>